0: Data science has been one of the major driving forces behind the explosion of Python in recent years. It's now used for AI research, it controls some of the most powerful telescopes in the world, it tracks crop growth and prediction, and so much more. But with all this growth, there's an explosion of data science machine learning libraries. That's why I invited Pete Garson onto the show. He's going to share his top 10 machine learning libraries for Python. After this episode, you should be able to pick the right one for the job. This is Talk Python to Me, recorded July 20th, 2017. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter, where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at TalkPython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at TalkPython. This episode is brought to you by DataCamp and us right here at TalkPython Training. Be sure to check out what we're both offering during our segments. It really helps support the show. Pete, welcome to TalkPython.
1: Thanks. I'm uh, happy to be here.
0: it's great to have you here. And I've done a few shows on machine learning and data science, but I'm really happy to do this one because I think... It's really accessible to everyone. We're going to bring all these different libraries together and kind of just make people aware of all the cool things that are out there for data science, machine learning.
1: Yeah, it's really crazy, actually, how many libraries are out there and how active the development is on all of them. There's new contributions, new developments all the time. And then it seems like there's new projects popping up like almost daily.
0: Yeah, it's definitely tough to keep up with. But hopefully this this adds a little bit of help uh, for for the reference there. But before we get into all these libraries, let's start with your story. How did you get into programming in Python?
1: I started programming at a pretty young age, like sort of back before Stack Overflow and things like that existed. <laughs> and uh, I sort of mostly made games. I started with BASIC, like most people probably from a certain age and then worked into working on Pascal and was making games for my BBS back in the day, making online games, utilities and stuff like that. And then for Python, uh, later when I worked in, I worked in games for a long time. And when I worked in games, we were doing like tool automation, so like build automation, certain workflow automation, build pipelines, all that kind of stuff. So Python was something, a tool that we used quite a lot there. So that was where I got my start with Python.
0: Oh, yeah, that's really cool. Python is huge in the workflow for games and movies, way more than people on the outside realize, I think.
1: Yeah, especially for artists. So like a lot of the tools have Python built into them and... So artists will use it for like automating model exports or rigging and that kind of stuff. So it's pretty popular in that sense. And then also still even just for like building assets for games.
0: Okay, I'm intrigued by your BBS stuff. It occurs to me and it's kind of crazy. There may be younger people listening that don't actually know what a BBS is. (laughs)
1: Okay, so a BBS is short for bulletin board system. And it was sort of like in a way, the precursor to the internet where you used to host what is effectively sort of a website on your home computer. And people would like call your phone number and you'd have it hooked up to your modem. And they would like call your phone number, connect to your home computer. So in my case, it was like my computer that I played games on and did my homework on and that kind of stuff. And they could connect and send messages to each other and download files and play games, very simple games, that kind of thing. So it was like a...
0: Yeah, it was so fun. Yeah, it was
1: awesome. And like, I really, really enjoyed it. And you had a thing called like Echo Mail back then, which was like this sort of way of like transferring messages all over the world. So, you know, somebody would send a message on your BBS and then it would like call a whole bunch of others like in this network. And then somebody in like Australia might answer it. And it would take like days to get back because it would be like this chain of people's bbss calling the next one so
0: yeah there there was no internet it was the craziest thing like uh we at our house my brother and i had talked uh, my dad into getting us multiple phone lines so we could work with bbss like in parallel yeah. <laughs> and you would send these mails and like at night there would be like a uh like a coordination of the emails across the globe as these things would like sync up the emails. They got queued up. It was the weirdest thing, but I loved, I don't know. What's it trade wars or planet wars? I, I, one of those games. I really loved it
1: for sure. I'm like a huge trade wars fan. You can actually play it now. Like there are people who have it set up on like websites that have like simulated telnet stuff and you can, you can play, versions of trade wars which i have done recently just to like
0: don't tell me that you're gonna ruin my productivity (laughs) for like the whole day
1: (laughs) yeah you'll be after this you'll be like oh trade wars 2002 is it still it's still around people still play it but it was such a good game it's fantastic
0: yeah it was fantastic it's awesome All right, so that's how you got into this whole thing. Like, what do you do today? You work at ActiveState, right?
1: I do, yeah. I'm a dev evangelist at ActiveState. So generally, that means working with developers, language communities, trying to make our distributions better. So at ActiveState, we do language distributions. Probably a lot of people in the Python space know us that we do ActivePython, and it's been around for a long time. We were a founding member of the Python Software Foundation. And so ActiveState has a pretty long history in the Python community. And before that, we were... People probably know us from Perl, and now we have uh, Go distribution and Ruby beta coming out soon. So we're sort of expanding to all these different uh, dynamic language ecosystems.
0: Sure, that's awesome. So I know that maybe people are a little familiar with some of the advantages of these higher order distributions for Python, but maybe give us a sense of like, what is the value of these distributions over like going and grabbing Go or grabbing Python and just running with that?
1: I think that uh, you've got... Obviously, this sense of uh, curated packages. So there are, you know, in the Python distribution, there's like over 300 packages. And so you know that they're going to build, know they're going to play nice with each other, know that they have current stable versions, all that kind of stuff. And then additionally, you can buy commercial support. So for a lot of our customers, so we have a lot of like large enterprise customers they can't actually adopt a language distribution or a tool like that without commercial support. They need to know that somebody is, has their back. And so that's something that we offer on these language distributions for those large customers. But for the community and for individual developers, then that is something that having that curated set of packages that you know is going to work, that you know is going to play nice. And that also as a maybe a development team lead, you might want a unified install base so that all your developers have the same development environment and they and you know it's all going to play nice and so that's something that's one of the advantages of those
0: that's really cool certainly the ability to install things that have weird compilation stuff do you guys ship the binaries like pre-built for that so i don't have to have like a fortran compiler or something weird
1: exactly yes so they're all pre-built all pre-compiled So, I mean, a lot of people, depending on what platform you're on, like on Windows, you might not even have a C compiler installed, and a lot of packages are C based. And so they're pre built. And like you said, you don't need a Fortran or compiler or some some exotic build tool to actually make it work. It just works out of the box.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's really awesome. And ActivePython is free. If I'm like a random person, not a huge corporate that wants support
1: exactly yeah if you're just a you know a developer it's free to download and free to use and it even if you are uh, you know a large corporation it's free to use in non-production settings so on your own so it's you know you can go and just download it try it out see if it works for you
0: okay yeah that sound sounds awesome how many of the 10 libraries we're going to talk about would come built in do you know off the top of your head i think that Actually almost all of them, but
1: maybe I think Cafe is on the list. It's not in the current one, but it is on the list to be included. So I think actually like pretty much all of the other ones, maybe CNTK as well is Yeah, yeah, that's still, really new as well. That's really new. So but uh you know we are targeting to have as many of these as we possibly can. And so pretty much most of them are, are included.
0: That's awesome. So all the libraries that we're talking about, like one really nice way to just get up to speed with them would be grab active, active Python, and you'd be ready to roll. Huh?
1: Exactly. Yeah, direct. Awesome. Grab them, install them. You're ready to go roll right, <laughs> out of the bo- right out of
0: the gate. Cool. All right. So let's start at what I would consider the foundation of them. The first library that you picked, which is NumPy and SciPy.
1: Absolutely. And they are foundational in the sense that a lot of other libraries either depend on them or are, in fact, built like on top of them, right? So they're, they are sort of the base of, of a lot of these other libraries. And most people might have worked with with NumPy. Sort of the its main feature is that sort of n-dimensional array structure that it includes. And a lot of the data that is shipped to a lot of the other libraries is either supported that you can send it a NumPy array or it requires that you that you format it that way. So, especially when you're doing machine learning, you're doing a lot of matrices and a lot of like higher dimensional data depending on how many features you have. It's a really really useful data structure to have in place.
0: Yeah, so NumPy is this sort of array like multi-dimensional array like thing that stores and does a lot of its processing down in a C level but has of course its programming api in python right
1: yes yeah exactly
0: and a lot of these machine
1: learning libraries do tend to have c level like lowest level implementations with a python api and that's predominantly for speed so when you're doing tons and tons and tons of calculations and you need them to be really really lightning fast that's the primary reason that they do these things you know sort of at the c level
0: Right. Absolutely. And so related to this is SciPy. They're kind of grouped under the same organization, but they're not the same library exactly, are they?
1: No. So SciPy is like a more scientific mathematical computing thing. And uh, it has the more advanced like linear algebra and like Fourier transforms image processing. It has like a physics calculation stuff built in. So most like scientific numerical computing functionality is built into SciPy. I know that NumPy does have like linear algebra and stuff in it, but I think that the preferred is that you use SciPy for all that kind of linear algebra crunching.
0: Okay, yeah. So a lot of these things that we're going to talk about will somewhere in them have as a dependency or an internal implementation of some variation, or even in maybe in its API, like the ability to pass between them, these NumPy arrays and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. uh, One other thing that's worth uh, noting that's pretty interesting, and I think this is a... A trend that's growing. Maybe you guys have more visibility into it than I do, but NumPy in June 13th, 2017, so about a month ago at the time of the recording, received a $645,000 grant for the next two years to, to grow it and evolve it and keep it going strong. That's pretty cool.
1: It is very cool. And I think that you're starting to see that these open source projects are really forming the backbone of most of the machine learning research and actually implementation that you're seeing out there in the world. There's not a lot of sort of more closed source behind trade secret stuff. A lot of the most bleeding edge development and active development is happening in these open source projects. So, I think it's great to see them receiving funding and sponsorship like that.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And it's it's just going to mean more good things for the community and all of these projects. It, it's really great to see. One thing I want to touch on for every one of these is to give you a sense of how popular they are. And for each one, we'll say the number of GitHub stars and forks. And that's not necessarily the exact right measure for the popularity, because maybe this is used, like obviously NumPy is used across many of these other things, which have more stars, but people don't necessarily contribute directly to NumPy and so on. But for NumPy, and, uh, NumPy has about 5,000 stars and 2,000 forks to give you a sense of how popular it is. The next one up, scikit learn, has 20,000 stars and 10,000 forks. So tell us about scikit learn.
1: Scikit learn is, uh, again, like we mentioned before, is a, a thing that's built on top of scipy and NumPy. And is a very popular library for machine learning in Python. And uh, I think it was one of the first, if not the first, I'm not I'm not 100% sure, but it's been around for quite a long time. And uh, it supports a lot of the sort of most common algorithms for uh, machine learning. So that's like classification, regression, tools, all that kind of stuff. I actually just saw like a blog post come up in my feed today where Airbnb was using scikit-learn to do some kind of like property value estimation or something using machine learning. So it's being used very, very widely in a lot of different scenarios.
0: Oh yeah, that sounds really cool. It definitely is one of the early ones and it's kind of simpler in the sense that it doesn't deal with all the GPUs and parallelization and all that kind of stuff. It just, it talks about classification, regression, clustering, dimensionality, And modeling, things like that, right?
1: Yes, that's right. It doesn't have GPU support. And that can make it a little bit easier to install if you, you know, sometimes the GPU stuff can have a lot more dependencies that you need to install to make it work. Although that's getting better in the other libraries. And it's like you say, it is made and sort of designed to be pretty accessible and pretty easy, you know, because it has the sort of baked in algorithms that you can just say, oh, I want to do this. And it will crunch out your results for you. So I think that that's sort of the sort of ease of use and the sort of cleanliness of its API has contributed to its sort of longevity as one of the most popular machine learning libraries. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And it's obviously Scikit-learn being part of the SciPy whole family. It's built on NumPy, SciPy, and Matplotlib.
1: Yes, yes. So yeah, it includes interfaces for all that stuff and for like graphing the output and using Matplotlib and yeah, using NumPy for... Inputting your data and for getting your data results, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah very cool. All right, next up is Keras at 17.7 thousand stars and 6,000 forks. So, this one is for deep learning specifically, right?
1: Yeah, and so this is for doing rapid development of neural networks in Python. It's one of the newest ones, but it's really, really popular. I've had some experience working with it directly myself, and I was sort of really, really blown away by how simple and straightforward it is. So there's like it creates a layer on top of lower level uh, libs like TensorFlow and Theano, and lets you just sort of define: I want my network to look like this. So I want it to have this many layers and this many nodes per layer, and here are the activation functions and you know, here's the optimization method that I want to use. And you sort of just define this effectively a a configuration, and then it will build all of the graph for you, depending on what backend you used. And so it's very, very easy to experiment with the like shape of your network and with the different activation functions. So it lets you kind of really quickly reach and test, you know, different models to see which one works better and to sort of see what one works at all. So it's really uh, easy to use and really very effective. I used it to build a little game demo where we like had an AI where I trained an AI to play against you to determine when it could shoot at you.
0: Was this the um, the demo you had at PyCon?
1: It is. Yeah. Yeah. And uh-huh. so we had that demo at PyCon. Uh, I since did a blog post about it uh, a little bit. And then I actually just re- recently rewrote it in Go for Go for Con too. So <laughs> eventually it will be open sourced so that people can see. But one of the things that you really notice is that the actual like code for Keras to, d- to basically define the network and do the sort of machine learning heavy lifting part is very, very minimal, like a dozen lines of code or something like that. It's really surprising because you think it's like a ton of work, but... It makes it super easy.
0: Yeah, that's really cool, and it's it sounds like it, its goal is to be very easy to get started with. I like the idea of the ability to f- switch out the end from say TensorFlow to CNTK to Theano. Does how easy is it to do that? Like, if I'm, like, could I run some machine learning algorithms and say, let's try it in TensorFlow, and say, do some performance benchmarks and stuff? No, no, let's switch it over to Theano and try it here. And kind of experiment rather than completely rewriting in those various APIs.
1: Exactly. You literally, it's just a configuration thing. So you just, it's almost like a tick box, essentially. That
0: that is so easy.
1: It's so easy. And so that is absolutely one of the, I think, the driving key features of that library, that you can just pick whichever one suits your purpose or your platform, you know, depending on what's available on the platform that you're building for. Because currently there's not... TensorFlow versions for every platform on every version of Python, and all that kind of stuff. So.
0: Right. Okay. Well, that's that's pretty cool. So there's two interesting things about this library. One is the fact that it does deep learning. So maybe tell people about what deep learning is. How does that relate to like standard neural networks or other types of machine learning stuff?
1: Well, I think the sort of the simplest way to put it is the idea of like adding these additional layers to your network to create a more sophisticated model. So that allows you to create things that can take more sophisticated feature domains and then map those to an output more reliably. So, and that's where you've seen a lot of advances, for instance, like in, like a lot of the image recognition stuff that leverages deep learning to be really, really good at identifying images or even doing things like style transfer on images where you have a photograph of some scene and then you have some other photograph and you're like I want to transfer the style of the evening to my daytime photograph and it will just do it and it looks like pretty normal and those are like the most I guess popular common deep learning examples that you see cited
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense and you know it's it's easy to think of these as being like I know Snapchatty, like sort of superfluous type of examples, but you know machine learning doing them, like you know putting the the little cat face on or switching faces or whatever. <laughs> but you know there's real meaningful things that can come out of this, like for example the detection of tumors in uh, radiology scans and, and things like that. And these deep learning models can do the image recognition on that and go, yep, that's cancer you know, maybe better than even radiologists can already. And then in the future, it's going to get crazy.
1: Exactly. And and it's funny, you mentioned that uh, Stanford Medical about a month ago, a month and a half ago, actually released like, I don't know how many, like 500,000 radiology scans that are like annotated and ready for training machine learning. So that exact (laughs) use case is intended to be like a deep learning problem to be applied. And there are all kinds of additionals of these data sets that are coming out. I just saw a post this week about deep learning model that was using, that was measuring heart monitor data and being more effective than cardiologists kind of thing. So
0: it's really crazy. You think of this AI and automation disrupting low end jobs, right? Like uh, at McDonald's, we might have robots making our hamburgers or something silly like that. But if they start cutting into radiology and cardiologists and that's that's gonna like that's gonna be a big deal
1: it absolutely is gonna be a big (laughs) deal (laughs) i think people probably start need to start thinking about it i don't think it's necessarily a complete replacement thing it's not you know the radiologist ai can't talk to you yet i guess and until (laughs) wait till we get to nltk (laughs) but it can definitely augment and lighten the load on professions like medicine that are you know perpetually overworked and allow right. them to to be more effective you know human doctors so i think that like as tools these things are going to be absolutely incredibly revolutionary
0: yeah it's going to be amazing you know do you want a second opinion let's ask let's ask the super machine <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly but i mean it's able to one of the strengths of all these machine learning models is that the machine learning models are able to visualize higher dimensional complex data sets in ways that like humans can't really do you? and they have like just intense focus, I guess, right? These models. Whereas it might be it's pretty hard for a doctor to read every single paper ever written on subject X or to look at five hundred thousand radiology images even across the course of their career. So
0: pretty optimistic where this goes. It's it's gonna be interesting to join all this stuff together. The other thing that we're just starting to touch on here, and it's going to appear in a bunch of these others, so maybe worth spending a moment on as well, is Keras lets you basically seamlessly switch from CPU computation and GPU computation. So maybe not everyone knows like the power of Non visual GPU programming, maybe talk about that a bit
1: for sure. So, your GPU, which is your graphics processing unit, so uh, you know, if you have a gaming PC at home and you have like a you know what I mean, an NVIDIA graphics card or an ATI graph
0: can run the Unreal Engine like crazy or whatever, right?
1: Oh, exactly. So, if you have if you play games and you have a dedicated graphics card, you well, even without a dedicated graphics card, but you have a GPU and there's this thing called general purpose GPU programming so that. Originally, like a GPU is highly parallel computer. It has like a thousand cores in it, or whatever, something some huge number of cores.
0: Yeah, one to four or five thousand cores per GPU. Right. Exactly.
1: Yeah, and so like the intention there was originally that it's because it needs to in parallel process every pixel or every polygon that's going on the screen, right, and perform like effects. So that's why you can get like blur and and all this kind of stuff in real time and real time lighting and all that kind of stuff. So. It processes all that stuff in parallel, but then as the people started to develop SDKs that let you like, well, in addition to doing graphics programming, we can just run regular programs on these things and they're really, really fast at doing math programs, so we can do that and... So now, basically, a lot of these libraries support GPU processing, and it's literally just like a compile flag now. It's getting a lot easier. You know, you still have to make sure you have the drivers and that you, you know, you have a a GPU that's reasonably powerful, that's, and especially if you're doing a lot of computation. And so then you can basically run these giant ML models on your GPU. And again, it's something that's pretty, pretty well suited to being parallelized. So that is really great use of GPU. And that's why you're seeing it take off because these models are, are easily made parallel.
0: Yeah, they're what are called embarrassingly parallel algorithms, right? And just throw them at this these things with 4,000 cores and let them go crazy. Yeah, the early days, I mean, still, I guess, uh, when you're doing DirectX or OpenGL or these things, like it's really all about I want to rotate the screen. So that's like a matrix multiplication against all of the vector things in there. It's it's really similar, actually, the type of work it has to do. The other thing, I guess, which I don't see appearing anywhere in here, but I'm, I suspect TensorFlow may have something to do with it, is the the new stuff coming from Google where they have like going beyond GPUs for like AI focused chips. Did you hear about this?
1: Yes. So uh, Google has a thing called a TPU, which is a tensor processing unit or whatever. And you can, that's like a cloud hosted special piece of hardware that's optimized for doing TensorFlow. And so I don't know the exact benchmarks in terms of how that compares to, you know, like some gigantic GPU assembly, but obviously Google thinks that this is a worthwhile investment to build these sort of hardware racks in the cloud and then give people access to run their models on there. So I think you're probably going to see more and more specialized ML-targeted hardware that's coming out. Whether I don't know whether it's like you'll obviously see consumer hardware, like you can go and buy a, something for your home computer, but especially in the cloud, you definitely
0: will. Yeah, definitely in the cloud. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. They were talking about real-time training, not just real-time uh, answers. So that sounds pretty crazy. This portion of TalkPython to me has been brought to you by DataCamp. They're calling all data science and data science educators. DataCamp is building the future of online data science education. They have over 1.5 million learners from around the world who have completed 70 million DataCamp exercises to date. Learners get real hands-on experience by completing self-paced, interactive data science courses right in the browser. The best part is these courses are taught by top data science experts from companies like Anaconda and Kaggle and universities like Caltech and NYU. If you're a data science junkie with a passion for teaching, then you too can build data science courses for the masses and supplement or even replace your income while you're at it. For more information on becoming an instructor, just go to datacamp.com create and let them know that Michael sent you. So speaking of uh, popular libraries and TPUs, the next up is TensorFlow. That originally came from Google, and it is crazy at 64,000 stars and 31,000 forks. So tell us about TensorFlow. So
1: TensorFlow, obviously, yeah, is this is Google's machine learning library, and this is, forms the sort of slightly lower level than something like Keras, And like, obviously it's used as a backend. You can use it directly as well. And what it does is it uh, represents your model as a computation graph. So that's effectively a graph where the nodes are like operations. And this is a way that they found is really, really effective to, to represent these models. And it's a little bit more intimidating to get started with, uh, mostly because you have to think about building this graph but you can use it directly in, in, in Python. Python is actually the recommended language and workflow from Google. So, for example, you know when I rewrote the Go version of our little game there, I still had to train and export my model from Python. So I used Python to build that, export it. So that's the sort of recommended workflow currently from Google for many languages is to use Python as the primary language binding.
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting and great to see Python. Python appears in so many of these these libraries as a primary way to do it. So there's some interesting stuff about this one. Obviously, it's super popular. Google has so many use cases for machine learning just up and down their whole, you know, everything that they're doing. So having this like developed internally is really cool. It has a flexible architecture that lets it run on CPUs or GPUs, obviously, or mobile devices. And it even lets it run like on multiple GPUs and multiple CPUs. Do you have to do anything to make that happen? Or do you know how it does that?
1: As far as I can tell that, especially for like this switching between CPU and GPU, it's essentially a compile flag. So you have to build, like when you build the libraries or download one of the, the nightly builds or whatever, you have to get one of the the versions or ha- that has the enabled GPU support kind of thing built in. And I think that there are also now increasingly like CPU optimizations in there. So like for instance, Intel is doing hand optimized math kernel stuff that's integrated directly into TensorFlow to make it even faster. So that that's something that you can also get in like the latest version as well. So I definitely think speed and performance and making that stuff easily accessible to depending on what your hardware is and wh- where you're going to deploy it is, is a big focus for them.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. So do you think this is running in the Waymo cars, you know, the Google self-driving cars?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I'd be almost positive of it, you know, from... Everything that I've read and people that I've talked to, I mean, this is Google built this to use, not just, you know, so there, this is the platform for all of their deep learning and machine learning projects. And so I would assume that it's, that's TensorFlow is powering that and it, it's running pretty much all of their, all of their stuff.
0: Very, very cool. It's probably in Google Photos and some other things as well.
1: Yeah. Google Translate, all those things are all... Yeah. You know, those things, pretty much all of the the projects, when you start looking at them, that Google is running are all effectively AI projects. And (laughs) that's basically all the things that, you know, that just recently, like the Google Translate, which uses machine learning and like statistical models to do the translations is approaching human level accuracy for translation between a lot of the popular languages where they have huge, huge data sets to pull from.
0: Yeah, that's crazy and very, very cool. So up next, number five is Theano at 6,000 stars and 2,000 forks. And this one is really kind of similar to TensorFlow, but really low level, right?
1: Yeah, so it is, you know, more low level and it is very similar to TensorFlow in the sense that it's also a very high high speed math library. And I believe it's actually, it was originally made by a couple of the guys who then went on to Google to make TensorFlow. So it predates TensorFlow by a little bit, but it also has, you know, the things that we're, we're talking about here. It has transparent GPU use and you can do things like symbolic differentiation and a lot of like mathematical things, uh, mathematical operations that you want to be highly, highly performant. So it is actually pretty similar to what TensorFlow does and sort of serves a similar purpose. But depending on what you're comfortable with and what your maybe existing projects are, then that is probably going to dictate which one you're using. And if you're using something like Keras, then you can just choose this as the back end. Just I, flip the switch. Just flip the switch, and there you go. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's cool. It also says it has extensive unit testing and self-verification where it'll detect and diagnose like errors. Maybe you've set up your model wrong or something like that. That's pretty cool.
1: That's pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. I mean, all of these... Libraries are built by super, super smart, accomplished people who (laughs) are creating things that are, you know, solving a real world problem for them and really, you know, sort of pushing things forward. And I actually think it's great that there's so many, so many libraries in this space because it really is just making it better for everybody.
0: Yeah, the competition is really cool too, to see the different ways to do this and probably cross-pollination
1: exactly yeah
0: yeah so one of the things you have to do for these models is feed them data and getting data can be a super messy thing and the one library that stands out above all the others about taking transforming redoing cleaning up data is pandas right
1: absolutely yeah pandas is is one of those those libraries that if you're manipulating especially large sets of data and real world data, then this is the one that, that people you know, repeatedly come back to. And yeah, so Pandas is, for those that might not know, is like a you know, data munging data analysis library that lets you transform it. One of the hardest parts when you're doing machine learning is actually getting your data into a format that can be used effectively by your model. And so a lot of times real world data is pretty messy, or it might have gaps in it, or it might not actually be formatted in the right units. So it might not be sort of normalized so that you're within the right ranges. And if you feed the models just sort of raw data that hasn't really been either cleaned up or, or formatted correctly, then what you might find is that the model doesn't converge or You get what seems like random results or things that don't really make sense and so you know spending this time and having a library that makes manipulating especially very large sets of data very easy like pandas is super useful and even just for instance like when i i I was doing that that little demo there that that we talked about originally uh, you know when i started i was feeding things raw raw pixel values for positions and velocities and stuff and it just wasn't working and it wasn't until i really normalized the data cleaned it up that i had started getting good consistent results so it's you know dealing large-scale data sets and being able to manipulate them effectively is super important
0: yeah the at the heart of all these successful ai things these machine learning algorithms and whatnot is a tremendous amount of data it's why the companies that we talk about doing well are like enormous data-sucking machines like Google and Microsoft and some of these other ones, right?
1: Exactly, and that's where the power of them comes from is like, you know, Google has access to like just massive amount of, of data that we don't have access to regular people or like we were talking about earlier with like the radiology images. You need do you need a fairly large set of annotated data and so that's data where, you know, these are case files or whatever that, you know, a doctor already gone through and said, this one was a cancer patient. This one wasn't. And without that kind of annotated data, the models can't really learn. They need to know what the answer is. Right. Yeah. And so yeah, right. that's really, really important.
0: Yeah. We have the whole 10,000 hours become an expert for humans. It's that's kind of the equivalent for machines.
1: Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I don't know what the I don't know what the thing is. It's machines might need more. That's one of the things that is really interesting about humans is that our neural networks can learn remarkably quickly without having to walk into traffic a thousand times or <laughs> do something like that. I and so there's I don't know. There's some magic going on there or something.
0: Yeah, there sure is. All right, next up is Cafe and Cafe Two, and. This originally started out as a vision project, right?
1: That's right. Yeah, Berkeley. And so this was primarily a vision project. And then there's a sort of successor that is backed by Facebook, actually, and is more general purpose and is sort of optimized for web and mobile deployment. So... Obviously, you know, if you want to have machine learning based apps on your phone, then having a library that sort of targets that is, is is pretty important.
0: Yeah, I'm sure we're going to see more of that. I mean, there are even rumors. I don't know how trustworthy they are that the next Apple, maybe actually, did they announce this, that the next iPhone will have a built in AI chip? I remember that they just announced. So
1: Apple actually just announced machine language SDK Core ML at WWDC in June and so Apple is already targeting these sort of deployed ML models. So it, you know in that that library's case you are effectively choosing a pre-made model. So I want image recognition or I want you know language parsing in my app and then you can just feed these sort of pre-trained models. But it wouldn't surprise me, you know, they've got the what is it like the motion chip in your iPhone yeah. now?
0: Yeah, they've got the motion chip. Yeah. So
1: it wouldn't surprise me at all that to start seeing that phones are deploying AI chips in there to assist with this. Because most of the sort of things like Siri is a machine learning based thing, right? So
0: Yeah. Would, yeah, it's and it doesn't make sense to go to the cloud all the time. Like that's one of the super annoying things about Siri is you ask it a question and it's like six seconds later, like you ask it something simple, like what time is it? 10 seconds later, it'll tell you, it's such and such, like, is it really that hard? Yeah. yeah. It's got to go all the way to the cloud and you're in some sketchy network area or something, right?
1: Exactly. And so that, I wouldn't be surprised to start seeing that stuff deployed onto onto mobile.
0: I think at uh, the, even at Build, Microsoft's conference, they started talking about, edge machine learning where like the machine learning happen is getting pushed to all these iot devices that they're working on as well so a lot of a lot of attempts in this area
1: for sure yeah and that's the next big thing right is like having iot based machine learning devices like can your fridge learn like your grocery consumption habits and <laughs> you know suggest tell you like you're gonna run out of milk in two days and you're going to the store today maybe you should pick some up i, I mean it's it gonna happen kind of crazy but it totally will happen in and yeah yeah
0: yeah I mean it doesn't sound as crazy as let's just let a car go drive in a busy city on its own <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's true, and yet but that's that's something that exists now right like that's that's a that's a thing like you can and maybe it's not fully autonomous, but I mean you could go and buy one like tomorrow you could buy a car that you can turn on autopilot and like it's you crazy know, it's fully it drive crazy. for you so <laughs> yeah <laughs> The future is now.
0: The future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. This portion of TalkPython is brought to you by us. As many of you know, I have a growing set of courses to help you go from Python beginner to novice to Python expert. And there are many more courses in the works. So please consider TalkPython training for you and your team's training needs. If you're just getting started, I've built a course to teach you Python the way professional developers learn by building applications. Check out my Python Jumpstart by building 10 apps at talkpython.fm slash course. Are you looking to start adding services to your app? Try my brand new consuming HTTP services in Python. You'll learn to work with RESTful HTTP services as well as SOAP, JSON, and XML data formats. Do you want to launch an online business? Well, Matt McKay and I built an entrepreneur's playbook with Python for Entrepreneurs. This 16-hour course will teach you everything you need to launch your web-based business with Python. And finally, there's a couple of new course announcements coming really soon. So if you don't already have an account, be sure to create one at training.talkpython.fm to get notified. And for all of you who have bought my courses, thank you so much. It really, really helps support the show. One little fact or a quote from the CAFE web page that I want to just throw out there because I thought it was pretty cool before we move on is they say, Speed makes CAFE perfect for research experiments and industry deployments. It can process 60 million images per day on a single GPU. That's one millisecond per image for inference and four milliseconds per image for learning. That's insane. That's so fast,
1: like, and 60 million images per day is just like, it's crazy. And that's why, like, we were talking about like the data just a minute ago, and like the amount of data being poured into these. These models is just staggering if they're, you know, every day. And I don't doubt that they're probably feeding, you know, people are feeding these models like that much data every day. And I think they were saying 90% of the world's data that's ever been created has been created in the last year. And so it's just one of these things where it just accelerates and accelerates and builds on all this stuff. So I think... These things are just going to get faster until they're effectively real time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. I don't think we said the stars for that one. 20,000 and 11,000 forks. So up next is definitely one that data scientists in general just live on. And that's Jupiter.
1: For sure. And so this has just become like the standard interchange format for sharing data science, whether it's papers or datasets or or models, or this has just become the sort of standard, I don't know what you would call it, lingua franca for, you know, exchanging this data. And, and it's effectively a tool for the thing called the Jupyter Notebook, which is like kind of like a web pages with like embedded programs and embedded datasets. I think that's probably a good way to describe it for those who might not have used it before.
0: Right. It's like instead of writing a blog post or a paper that's got a little bit of code, then a little bit of description, then a picture, which is a graph, it's like live and you can re-execute it and tweak it. And it probably plugs into many of these other libraries and is using that somewhere behind the scenes to do that.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's built on the IPython kernel for that's like interactive Python kernel. Yeah. I'm sure that there are all kinds of specific uses that can run those notebook or that notebook code and use that that stuff yep. there
0: cool next up is maybe one of the newer kids on the block in this deep learning story from microsoft actually their cognitive toolkit CNTK.
1: yeah and it's it, they just released i think the 2.0 version of it beginning of june or late may and uh you know now it, it's open source and it's it's got the python bindings and it's part of you know microsoft's been doing a lot of open source work lately and they've been you know really really pushing a lot of their own projects and uh, it's like we said earlier, it's available as a backend for Keras. So it's similar again to TensorFlow and Theano that it's it's again, focused on that sort of low level computation as a directed graph. So similar model, I think this is you know obviously emerging as a popular and efficient way to represent machine learning models is using that directed graph. So it's pretty popular too, right? It's got a decent number of stars and forks and obviously as a Keras backend, And Microsoft-backed library, it's going to be pretty popular and pretty common out there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. These days, you know, with um, Satya Nadella and a lot of the changes at Microsoft, I feel like this open source stuff is really taking a new direction, a positive one. And also, I think their philosophy is if it's good for Azure... It's good for Microsoft. And so this plugs into their hosted stuff in interesting ways. And they've got a lot of like cognitive cloud services and things like that.
1: Yeah, Azure is becoming pretty huge. It's like starting to rival maybe even AWS for, you know, a lot of this cloud hosted services, and especially around machine learning, like Azure has so many different machine learning tools available. And it's really clearly a pretty pretty big focus for microsoft and again it's great to see you know more of the you know the sort of big guns being more open about their development and sharing i mean it drives everybody forward and and you know just accelerates development across the whole ecosystem
0: yeah and they have a number of the python core developers there they have brett cannon they have steve dower they have dino velan like there's some serious people back there working on the python part
1: exactly yeah they've got a lot of the python core team there and uh I know a bunch of the guys from Active State were just at Pi Data in Seattle and, you know, huge number of the core team were there and... You know, just really, really great little conference there, talking about Python and data science.
0: Yeah, I think they have some really interesting language stuff as well. So, speaking of languages, the uh, most certainly the longest running one, probably that's really still going strong, is NLTK with five thousand stars and one point five thousand forks.
1: Yeah, and so NLTK was like the natural language toolkit, and you know, obviously, this is a thing for doing natural language parsing, which is. I guess one of the the holy grails of of machine learning is to get it to be really, you know, so you can just speak to your to your computer in completely natural language and maybe even give it instructions in natural language and and be able to be able to follow your for your directions and understand what you're asking. And so this is like a really popular one in academia for research. They link to and include massive corpora of, of work. So that's like gigantic bodies of text in different languages and in different styles to be able to train models. So there's, there's also like a pretty large, like open data component to this project as well. And, uh, obviously, you know, the use case here for natural language is, you know, it's huge for translation. Like we mentioned earlier, chatbots, which are now a, a huge thing for like support. I mean, every website you go onto and it pops up, Hey, I'm you know, Bob, and I'm, can I help you today? And it's like, not really a person, it's just a chatbot. And, you know, there's just so many, and then like we were saying, Siri and and Cortana and all those sort of personal assistants where you can say, ask it a a natural language question and it can come back to you. So this is the sort of almost like foundational library, still going strong, still tons of active development and research going on with
0: this yeah it's really cool and especially with all the smart home speaker things google home HomePod, all that stuff this is just this is going faster not slower in terms of acceleration right it's we're talking more and interacting with them way more definitely the, the chat bots. and anytime you have text and you want a computer to understand it this is like a first step for tokenization stemming tagging parsing semantic analysis all that kind of stuff right
1: yeah and that's that's exactly what it outputs so it will do is like generate parse trees and and stem it all out and then use those the kind of tokenized version to use that to train your model not sort of raw text characters and uh we really are getting there i mean like these days like For sure, like just the recognition part, you know, the tokenization part is very, very good. It's more like the kind of semantic meaning. What do you mean when you ask it, you ask Siri for what are the movie times for X or something like that? How specific do you have to be to get a reasonable answer from her?
0: Yeah, it's got to go speech to text and then it probably hits something like this.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's going to hit a library like this. And we're getting there. It's not quite at the Star Trek computer, do this for me, but it's like way closer than I kind of ever thought we would be. It's really pretty impressive sometimes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's fun to see this stuff evolve. Absolutely. All right, Pete, that's the 10 libraries, and I think these are all really great selections, and hopefully people have got a lot of exposure and maybe learned about some they didn't know about and I guess encourage... Encourage everyone to go out there and try these out. And if you got an idea, play with it with one of them or more.
1: For sure. They're also accessible now. You know, you don't necessarily have to be ML researcher or a math wizard to actually create something that's interesting or experiment or learn a little bit. These libraries all do a really, really great job of abstracting away some of the more complicated mathematical parts. And you know, in the case of a lot of them making it reasonably accessible. And so that's where I think you're seeing this kind of like democratization trend in machine learning now where this stuff is becoming more accessible, it's becoming easier. And I think you're going to see a lot of creativity and a lot of innovation come out of people if they just sort of give it a shot and try something out and you know learn something new
0: yeah that's awesome i totally agree with the democratization of it and that's also happening from a computational perspective right like these are easier to use but also with the gpus and the cloud and things like that it's it's a lot easier you don't need a supercomputer you need 500 bucks or something for a gpu
1: exactly that's the i think all of these sort of things feed into in together where You have a democratization trend in the tools and the source code so that now, A, you can have access to Google's years and years of AI research via TensorFlow on GitHub. You also, like you said, can go and buy a $500 GPU and have basically a supercomputer on your desktop, but also this open data component where you can get access to massive data sets like the Stanford Image Library and you know, these huge NLTK, like language corpora that you can then use to train your models where previously that was probably impossible to actually access.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Because even though you have the machines, and you have the algorithms, the data, data really makes it work. All right, so I think let's leave it there for the library. those were great. And I'll, I'll hit you with the final two questions. going to write some code what editor python code what editor do you open up
1: well obviously uh, active state has komodo so i tend to use that a lot for doing uh python code but i've also to be totally fair I, i have used vs code as well which is getting increasingly popular so i tend to like to cycle between them all because we have an editor product and so you know it's great to keep up to date on what all the other ones are doing so i tend to cycle around a little bit but uh yeah, like Komodo is sort of my go-to.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's definitely important to look and see what the trends are, what other people are doing, how can you bring this cool idea back into Komodo, things like that, right? Yeah, for sure, yeah. All right, and oh, I think we've already hit 10, but do you have another notable PyPI package?
1: I don't know, there's there's so many. I would, again, probably give a, a little bit of a shout out to, you know, since we're talking about machine learning, to Keras, because I do think as an entry point to machine learning it's so accessible. It's so easy to at least get started and get a result with. I would give a little shout out to that, that I think that if you're looking to get into this and you're looking to try it out, that's a really great place to start.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. That's, that's where I would start as well. All right. Well, it's very interesting to talk about all these libraries with you. I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing this with everyone. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. You bet. Bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest has been Pete Garson, and this episode has been brought to you by DataCamp and us right here at TalkPython Training. Want to share your data science experience and passion? Visit datacamp.com create and write a course for a million budding data scientists. Are you or a colleague trying to learn Python? Have you tried books and videos that just left you bored by covering topics point by point? Well, check out my online course, Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps at talkpython.fm course to experience a more engaging way to learn Python. And if you're looking for something a little more advanced, try my Write Pythonic code course at talkpython.fm slash pythonic. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, Google Play feed at slash play, and direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.